Amen. We're beginning a series today on the book of Acts, and this series should take us all the way through the end of the year. There'll be a few Sundays here and there that will, you know, have, a, have a, a different topic or a standalone topic, but this series should take us to the end of the year. And we'll do a chapter a week, so it won't, it won't be a super in-depth all the time, but it will hopefully give us a, a macro view. Although, when you stay in a book for 28 weeks or so, it's, you're going to get a pretty good uh, in-depth view. Um, but as I was thinking about this book or, or beginning to study the series of the book of Acts, I was thinking about um, the idea of church and the notion of church when you talk to people about it. Um, it seems to me more and more I hear people who say, well, I really like Jesus, but I don't care very much for the church. And it's almost sort of a cliche because you hear that so much. And, uh, uh, and, and, and maybe it's people for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe people who've been hurt by the church, maybe people who've been disillusioned. And so the standard line seems to be, I like your Jesus, or I like my Jesus even, if they have a relationship with Jesus. I love Jesus, but I'm not quite sure what to do with church, and it just all feels funny. Well, you have that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have sometimes talk from the people who lead the church sometimes, who use language as if the church is really God's sales and marketing team. Now, I like sales and marketing. I think sales and marketing is wonderful. I have a master's in management and love my marketing classes and all of that. But that is not what the church is. And so sometimes, though, you have these leaders of the church who speak as if the church or the disciples are God's sales and marketing team, and the, the 12 were Jesus' first pyramid scheme, you know, and he says, okay, I got you 12, you know, I sort of tricked you into this, but have I got a plan for you? And then you go on and reproduce it, and on and on and on and on, and it's sort of this thing, and, and, and so sometimes leaders of the church use this language, and then they, you know, sort of carry it on and on and say, well, really, we just need to open more franchises, a.k.a. churches, and we've got more products to sell. And after all, don't we have the greatest product of all, which is eternal life? Now, at face value, this kind of sounds like it makes a bit of sense. And so we think, yeah, well, yeah, that's great. Isn't it wonderful? We can frame church in business, sales, and marketing language, except that that's not what it is. And so, on the one hand, you have people framing church in sales and marketing language, and then you have people who say, well, that's exactly why I don't want anything to do with this, you know? You ever uh, been friends with someone, you're getting to know them a little bit, and then they invite you over to your, their house for dinner, and then you find out they didn't just invite you, but they invited 10 other people, and they had a PowerPoint presentation they wanted to show you after dinner, you know? All of a sudden, you're like, we're not really going to be friends, are we, you know? And I suspect that that's a little bit like how people feel when they come to church because, you, you know, they, someone gives them a message about forgiveness of sins and going to heaven and God loves you and they're like, oh, yes. And then they show up and someone's asking for money and there's a church and there's people. That, and you sort of feel like you got bamboozled here, you know, like, wait a minute. I wanted Jesus, but what's this church thing? And really it highlights for us that we have in our day a crisis of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is this word that means the study of church. What is church? Or even in another way to say it, why church? Why the gathering of God's people? Why a community of the people of God? We have a crisis of ecclesiology because we don't quite know how to answer that question. And so as a result, you have sometimes people will say, well, you know, maybe it's just uh, me and my buddies and we can just uh, grill in the backyard and, and the, the back, hang out on the back porch and isn't that church. That was my church today. Or 
uh, in Colorado. You know, I'm just going to go hiking today, and that's going to be my church. Pikes Peak will be the temple of the Lord today, and that's my church. Now, you're laughing because you, you've either, A, said this before, or B, you've heard someone say this before. And, 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 and it just highlights our problem of ecclesiology. But again, if that's what the common person is saying, then you have church leaders making the matter worse by acting like all church is is an event to experience, a product to consume. And so we focus, we have whole conferences to teach people to be really good at customer service and parking lot whatevers, and, and all those are nice things. Look, I like happy people or friendly people better than unfriendly people, but there's something off here. Someone said to me when, when they found out I was starting this campus, they said, well, Glenn, you know, the, the key to a, a quote-unquote successful campus is you just need a good band and a good communicator. I wasn't troubled by it because I didn't know where to find a good band and a good communicator. I was troubled by it because it said, is that it? Is that it? Church, good band and a good communicator. It's an event. So for the people who say, no thanks, I'd rather church is going to be me and my buddies hiking or whatever, in some ways, I don't blame you. Because what we've made church into is this event to experience or product to consume. But nobody on either side is getting it quite right because that's not what church is. And I am so excited for this series on the book of Acts because this is exactly the issue that the book of Acts is trying to address. Why do I say that? First of all, let's, un un let's dispel a few myths of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a play-by-play -play history. It's not day one, this happened, day two. In fact, timelines are kind of, um, there's some creative license with timelines and how this flows. There are stories that are being arranged in a particular order for a particular point. Secondly, the book of Acts is not an idealized vision of the church. Have you ever heard people say, well, I just, you know, the church today is such a mess. If we could just get back to the book of Acts. Heard that? The book of Acts opens with Peter reminding everyone that Judas had betrayed Jesus. The book of Acts opens with the first preacher being the guy who denied Christ three times. Five chapters in, you get a couple struck dead. That's a funny passage we're going to have to deal with in a few weeks. This is not an idealization of church. This is not like, ooh, the back then when it was perfect. If we no, no, this isn't that. This is stories of God's people learning to be God's people, sometimes doing well at it, sometimes doing lousy at it, and yet God at work in the midst of it. So Acts is these stories that are arranged uh, in kind of a narrative for a point, and likely sort of the best academic guess about when this letter was written, when this book was written, for those of you who care about this stuff, uh, which I, I do, so you'll always find me dropping tidbits like that. And if you care, great. If you don't care, fine. But here's the deal. It's, it's written late enough that most likely all of the other epistles were already written. In other words, there's all these congregations that have been planted around the region in Asia Minor. You've got Paul's letters that have been written to them. And then somebody says, you know what? We better catalog some of the stories of how this began. Let's go back and tell the story because I think people are kind of forgetting why we do this. Oh, wait a minute. So you think we're not the only ones? We're not the first ones to have had a crisis of what church is? Right. 
You mean like a hundred years into this, those guys were kind of already dealing with a crisis of what church in, is and why church? Probably. Probably. And so this, this person, by tradition is Luke, is compiling these stories and saying, look, let's put it together as a way of reminding us what our story is. Now, I, I, I don't know how, um, how you, what you think of history or whatever, you know, but, but the truth is, in, in a lot of our families, we have stories that are passed down, right? This is the story of your great-grandfather who, who fought in the war and this and that, you know, or, or, or it, it, like Holly's grandparents, you know, they, they survived the depression. And so when they give us $10 on an anniversary and say, go out to have a nice dinner, kids, they still think $10 is like going to get you dinner at a hotel in town or something, you know. But they lived through the depression. I mean, I, we know the stories of, you know, Grandpa Rob Michael coming on the train from Indiana with a couple of dimes in his pocket and finding a way to work someone else's farm and saving up money to buy a farm, land of his own. Stories form your identity. Stories form who you are. Stories give you a sense of what this is all about. And Acts is that. Acts is these guys saying, let's put together these stories so we kind of remember how this all started and what we're doing here when we gather on a Sunday. Does that make sense? Everybody interested in the series now? Okay, good. All right. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 8 is where we'll start. Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything Jesus did and taught from the beginning. Now, we'll stop right there. The first scroll I wrote, what's he talking about? But church tradition says Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke. So whether he wrote them at the same time or whether they were divided because of length, you know, the, 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 the scrolls have a particular length that you could fit in. So any publishers in the room, there's a fixed word count here that could, that could fit, okay? So Luke divides his story into uh, part one and part two. Um, it's a little bit like if you watch, if you're into a TV show and the end of season one, you know, season one ends and you're like, oh, this is going to be so good. I can't believe we have to wait all summer until season two. That's kind of this. So the gospel of Luke is season one and the book of Acts is season two. The story continues and Luke says that. Okay, so right up to the day when he was taken up into heaven, before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. And while they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And he said, this is what you've heard from me, John baptized with water, but, only in a few, but, on, but in only a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Now, stop there for a minute. When we hear this question, these guys are saying, now Jesus, given that you just said you're going to pour out the Holy Spirit, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To all of us as modern Christians, we think, what a bunch of boneheaded guys. It's not about a kingdom on earth. It's about getting your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die, right? You should know by now, week three of New Life Downtown, you should know by now that even though that's true, it's not the point. It's like that great quote from N.T. Wright. Heaven's wonderful, but it's not the end of the world. Literally, there's something beyond that that God has in mind. And so these, these early followers of Jesus 
weren't waiting to get from here to up there. They were waiting for the God up there to take charge down here. And they saw the world as two time frames, this age and the next age. And so when they saw Jesus being raised, there were several markers. It's kind of like when you're driving from here to Tulsa and you're on I-70 forever and you think, gosh, are we there yet? And then there's a few mile markers. Oh, look, we're getting closer. Okay, look, here's the sign for this. Okay, here's that one gas station. There's the sign for the five-legged prairie dog or whatever it is, you know. And, and there, there's, you know, Kansas, you, you kind of know wh where you are. In the same way, these disciples, they, these the Jews in the first century had a few signs that marked the beginning of this new age, this age where God would act. One of the signs was bodily resurrection. And they said, hey, that, that happened, Jesus. Another sign was God was supposed to win a great victory. Well, kind of, the cross, maybe, if you understood it that way. But then another one of the signs was there was going to be the Holy Spirit poured out. So Jesus has just said, I'm going to pour out the Spirit. And so they're thinking, <gasps> we are now, we've got to be two miles away. I mean, this is it. So another one of the signs in their mind was Israel would be restored, and through Israel, God would rule the whole world. Well, this is where Jesus kind of gives a yes and no answer. He says, he doesn't say to them, that's a silly question. He says, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus saying, okay, you're on to something, you're right, but it's different. First of all, the great victory that God's going to win, yeah, did that. That was the cross and the resurrection. Oh, and God becoming king on the earth, that's me. I'm the king now, Jesus, and we're going to see later on how Jesus' ascension means his enthronement, enthronement, okay? And then he says, look, I am pouring out my spirit, but it's not just Israel now. It's a whole new people. It's all of you. It's going to be Jews and Gentiles. Now, this is important because we want to say, well, what, what are they waiting for? We, that's kind of what they were waiting for. But now this is Jesus saying, okay, look, listen up, guys. This is going to take place, but it's happening a little bit differently than you thought. My rule is going to now happen through a new people. Not, not that will include Jews, but it's going to include loads of others as well. Get ready. Something totally different is going to happen. But you're going to have to wait. Now this word, wait. We don't like it. Because wait, waiting is lousy. Our best businesses have found a way to reduce wait time. I don't want wait time on the phone when I'm trying to get my laptop not to die on me. I, I don't want wait time when I'm in pain and the chiropractor came in mercifully on a Saturday. I don't want to wait till Monday. Waiting is lousy. But waiting is what we do as the people of God. Because in a very real way, we are living between two ages. Something is ending, something has begun, but we're in between it. Sometimes charismatic Christians are really excited about 
the fact that Jesus won a great victory on the cross. And so they say, okay, look, everything Jesus did on the cross is ours now, 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 now. It's, it's ours, it's ours, it's paid for, it's paid for, it's paid for. And I wonder what these people were like as kids at Christmas time. Because no child can go to their dad and say, well, dad, you paid for my Christmas present. That's true, I did pay for it. Well, then I want it now. But, but it's not Christmas. But you paid for it. That's true, I did pay for it. Well, and I'm your son. You are my son, and you're getting annoying. But, well, the, but dad, if you paid for it, and I'm your son, then I want it now. But it's not Christmas. Do you know there are two times that Jesus says it is finished? John records both of them. Once at the end of his gospel on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The second time is this vision John has in the book of Revelation 21 when Jesus returns and he says, okay, now I'll wipe away every tear from every eye. Now I will, death will be no more. Now it's all going to end. Now there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It is done. So wait a minute. I thought it is finished. Why am I still waiting for an it is done? Well, that's just it, isn't it? It's been accomplished, but there's going to be a day when it'll all be done. I'm so confused, I know. And this is why waiting becomes the practice of all followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you now have the microwave working for you. Being a follower of Jesus means you've just joined a community of people who are learning to wait, who are learning to get good at waiting. But what does waiting do for us? What is waiting good for? Two things that I want to highlight this morning. First of all, waiting forms us into the people of God. Waiting forms us into the people of God. So Jesus tells these disciples, okay, look, you're going to get power, all this stuff, but you're going to have to wait together, 10 days together. Now, 10 days given is not that long of a time. But imagine living with 120 people in one room of the house, one upper room for 10 days. You're going to know each other really well or you're going to like strangle each other, you know? How many of you have been on like a road trip with people that you kind of thought were friends and then sort of halfway into the road trip you're like, oh Lord, what have I done? (laughs) Like, why did I invite this guy, you know? There's that guy who always wants country music on or whatever it is. (laughs) Nothing wrong with country. Anyway. Several of us went on this trip to Swaziland, you know, a few weeks ago, and, and we didn't all know each other that well, but we were about to, you know, after 24 hours of flying and then every day of bus rides, I think we totaled up 70 hours in nine days of being on moving vehicles together, tight, closed spaces with each other. You get to know people, you, or you get, you know, waiting together is what teaches you to really be with one another. Waiting forms us into the people of God. Sometimes I wonder about the logic that says I need to start a new church because I need to reach more people. I understand that. That's going to happen and we do want to reach more people. But starting a church is not a means to an end. Starting being the people of God actually is the end goal. Did you know that? God's end goal is not a sales and marketing team who will add more people. God's end goal is to have a people that are his own, to whom he can say, you are my people and I am your God. Family is the end goal. So 
Imagine this, this might make a little more sense if you think of a bizarre, how bizarre it sounds in a human relationship sense. Some of you gals that are in your young 20s and you're single, imagine, you know, a young man asks you out, you know, Spencer over here, you know, he asks you out and, and, and he, and, 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 you know, you're sitting down for coffee, your first date, and he says, hey, listen, I just want you to know, before you start to tell me about who you are and what you like and what's your favorite movie and all that, I just need to tell you, I don't care. Um, all, all I really want are kids. <laughs> Maybe this young lady would be like, wow, that's refreshing, you know, like a guy who likes kids, you know. But on the other hand, there's something really strange about that. So I don't really, I, honestly, like, uh, getting to know you, I could care less. I just, I, I bought this new house. It's got, like, six bedrooms. I just want loads and loads of kids. You in? How many pastors really love the bride of Christ, or do they just want to fill it with loads and loads of people? How many preachers and servants of God really love the bride of Christ for who she is, or do they just want to fill the house with more people? But waiting teaches us to be the people of God before we start going, uh, let's go do, look, listen, downtown, there's going to be a time where we're going to have really focused efforts. This summer, probably, there'll be lots of different things, and Bobby and Matt Ayers and their team are going to talk to us about different ways we can plug in and serve in local ministries downtown, and I, I love it. I am for all of it, and it's not mutually exclusive. It's not like we've got to wait until we're totally formed, and then we go and reach out. It's not quite like that, but it's just more of an order of sequence. Does that make sense? Or, or, or maybe priority. I, I don't know the phrase I'm, I'm looking for here. But it's what people tell a young couple when they get married. And they say sometimes, your parents don't usually say this because they want grandkids. But, but other people will usually say to you, hey, guys, why don't you take a couple years and just learn what it means to be married first, right? And if you get pregnant right away, you get pregnant right away, fine. God will help you, you know. But, 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 but loads of times people will say to a young couple, hey, just figure out what it means to be husband and wife and then add kids to this mess. Now, do you fully <laughs> do you do you fully know what it means to be husband and wife when you start having kids? No way. No way. Holly and I, we've been married 10 years, it'll be 11 years this summer. We're still trying to figure this out. But waiting 4 years before we had Sophia kind of helped a little bit, you know. It's like, okay, so it's not like you got to fully form and then, you know, it's not that. But I think there's something about that with a church, too. Um, good homes, good families, the husband and wife have decided a little bit about what the flavor or the culture of the home is going to be. Then when they start having kids, they kind of know what they're imparting to those children. You know, these are our values. These are who we are. We don't, you know... Uh, we're not doing the violent video game thing or whatever. You know, we've sort of, we, 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 we are sacrificial. We're, you know, but you kind of form these, I, this identity before you start adding to it. Does that make sense? That's, that's my prayer for us, that we wait enough to learn to eat with one another, learn to be with one another, learn to serve in the nursery with one another, learn to stack chairs with one another, learn to go out for meals with one another, to where when people, the Lord does start adding people to this, we'll know what they're being added to. Does that make sense? That's why my goal, people say, what's your vision to add this thing? Are we going to grow like crazy? You know, hang on, slow down, slow down, slow down. Let's wait. Let's be formed as the people of God. And then mission will flow out of this. Secondly, waiting 
fills us with the power of God. When they wait, what are, they're not just waiting in the way maybe you think of, of meditation, of like emptying your mind. It's not that at all. They're, they're waiting to be filled with the Spirit of God. They're waiting for power to come upon them. And there's no doubt that Acts 1 and Acts 2 is a very particular, symbolic, significant moment in the church's history that launches the church. No doubt about it. It's kind of like, you know, like when you're starting up your car, it makes the loudest noise, right? But hopefully, once your car is running, it doesn't keep making that noise. (laughs) You might have a problem. You see Larry Helzer over here, you know. If your car kept going, you'd be like, yeah, that's it. In the same way, the most dramatic, spectacular outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens to launch the church, no doubt about it. And yet, I do think there's something about this waiting to be filled with the power of God that's part of how we're supposed to live every day. In the same way, you know, some people talk about the gospel as past tense. Well, you know, yeah, that's when I got saved. But you notice the language of the New Testament reading? then we will know we are going to be saved. And if we are not waiting for some, if, if there's something, if we have it all, then we are not waiting for it. Romans 8, this whole idea that we're waiting means we don't quite have it all yet. Or this idea that salvation is not just past tense, but present tense and also future tense. In the same way, waiting on God for His Spirit to fill us with power is, is not, there may be this jump start kind of moment, like starting up a car, but really there's a daily kind of thing where you're saying, God, can I just slow down and wait before I start my day and say, Lord, would you help me today? Because I can't love my family without your power. I can't be patient with my coworkers without your power. I can't resist the temptations at work today without your power. I can't, see, waiting is actually an admission of powerlessness. Yesterday when I passed out and slid down the bottom of the stairs as Holly's trying to catch me, I wake up and I'm like, hey, well, what just happened? You know, did I, did I pass out? Yeah. She's calling 911, you know, and they're coming, and I'm waiting. <laughs> I can't do a thing. And I'm thinking, maybe I can prop my, ooh, can't move that way. Maybe on this elbow, can't move that way. And, you know, the medics come, and it's this fire captain guy, you know, and he's like, uh, he's like, well, we've got to take you in. And I'm like, ah, are you sure you have to take me in? And he just looks at me. He's like, you want to sit on the bottom of your steps all day? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, is this, this, this what you want to do? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, I mean, I just, I mean, maybe I could get up. And I'm like, no. Oh! And he's like, stretcher, get the stretcher, you know. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, because I need help. That's what waiting does for us. It reminds us that every day I need help. Every day I need the power of God to live out the way we're supposed to live as the people of God, amen? I wonder, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the guy that gets up at four in the morning and prays three hours and all that st- sort of thing. I, I, I'm trying to get better at all of this. But this whole experience this weekend was a, a good convicting thing. I mean, I was praying a lot last night. Lord, give me strength. Lord, heal me. Lord, this. I was praying a lot this morning. And I thought, you know, whether I physically am aware of my need or not, we're always in need of God. We're always in need of His power. And so right at the, the, the first story 
Luke wants to tell us is, by the way, when the church gets started, it gets started by learning to wait and wait for the power of God. None of this mission, none of this life, none of any of this is possible without the power of God. Some of you may be here in church for the first time in a long time, and your recollection of church is where they told you all the things you were supposed to do, and that's it. I think church is the place where we remember, yes, who we're supposed to be, but it's also where we, we remember that we can't on our own. And we begin to confess and say, God, help. Self-reliance doesn't work. We've all got this incapacitating thing that keeps us stuck on the floor, and we just need your power to lift us up. Amen? Two, three more verses. Acts 1, 9 through 11. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up on a cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going away, as, and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to him. And they said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The ascension of Jesus. It's in lots of different... Sorry, that was loud, wasn't it? The ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus... <laughs> is seen in lots of different paintings and lots of different artwork. And you often see it as these two dangling feet with like clouds up above, as if Jesus the spaceman is returning to his home planet. And he told us all along he was not an earthling, but now we know for sure. This is E.T. going home. Is that it? Is that what the ascension is? Jesus going back to his planet, to heaven even? Or is Luke using imagery on purpose to make us think of something else? You see, all through Luke's gospel, Luke has Jesus use this phrase about himself, and the phrase is son of man, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. When one of the references, Jesus says, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds, right? I don't I grew up in a church my whole life I heard the Son of Man coming on the clouds is the second coming. Did you hear that too? I did too. Until I started reading some other scholars, proper scholars, explaining this. Daniel 7 is an amazing chapter because there's this vision Daniel has of the Ancient One and he describes the Ancient One being seated up on this huge throne and he's been talking about the Son of Man as one who's going to suffer unjustly and then be vindicated. Boy, does that sound like someone? And then Daniel 7 says this in verse 13. As I continued to watch this night vision of mine, I saw one like a human being. NIV or other translations will say the Son of Man. Coming with the heavenly clouds. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. Stop for a moment. Which way is the coming going? Up or down? Up. Uh-oh. So the Son of Man coming on the clouds is not Jesus returning while he's cloud surfing. But it's Jesus, it's, he's using Daniel 7 language. Why? 
Because verse 14, rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting rule. It will never pass away. His kingship is indestructible. When Luke uses this image of Jesus ascending on a cloud, he's saying, guys, listen up. Jesus is going to, the, to be enthroned. Ascension is not Jesus' escape. Ascension is Jesus' enthronement. This is Luke's way of saying in language and imagery that they would have been familiar with that Jesus is now the king of the world. And all authority and power is his and his rule is everlasting and his kingship's indestructible. Jesus' ascension is a way of saying he rules and reigns. And what does that mean for us? Jesus says to his disciples, we've just read it, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus is saying, look, I've got all the authority, and now in my name, you're going to have the power. The power. Power. When you, in the old days, first century, a new king would, be, would come king. Now, Imagine for a second, this is pre-Twitter. They didn't know breaking news any other way than messengers coming and announcing the news. And so these messengers would come and announce to distant parts of the empire or whatever and say, there's a new Caesar. It's this person. He's the one who now who is king. And in fact, this phrase gospel comes from that word, euangelion, the good news of Caesar's kingship. And they would print coins that would say, this is the new Caesar, and because of him there is peace now. And they would print the word peace on the coin, or the word freedom, or the word salvation. So when Paul and the first followers of Jesus say, wait a minute, Caesar's not king, Jesus is king. And in his name there is real freedom, real salvation, real peace, and we are the witnesses of that. He's ripping language from the pages of Caesar's playbook. And he's deliberately saying, all those who tell you they're the real kings of the world are lying. Jesus is king. You have his power. Announce it. Announce it. Announce that he's really king. In these weeks that we study the book of Acts, we're going to see just how the church announces Jesus' kingship. Eventually, You'll see them bringing the good, good news to those who are hurting. You'll see them forgiving when they should not forgive. You'll see them, when they escape from a prison, being merciful to a prison guard instead of killing him. You'll see this power at work in a very different kind of way than the world works. Jesus rises and uh, ascends and he says, now you're waiting for power. Really, the book of Acts is not so much the book of the Acts of the Apostles as much as it is the book of the Acts of Jesus continued through His people on the earth. The Gospel of Luke is a story of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth, and the book of Acts is the story of that king continuing to reign on the earth through us, His people. That's powerful when you think of it that way. That means church is like an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's a colony of the kingdom. It's a, it's a people who insist that there's a different king while everyone else thinks that money or fame or sex or pleasure or something else is king. We, the people of God, live in this different way. So we wait 
to be formed as the people of God and to be filled with the power of God so that we can announce Jesus as King and live as a colony of the kingdom in this world. A colony is not a perfect image because there's problems with that image, but you get the point. We're following a different king. We're living by a different way. It's interesting, just a little side note on the book of Acts. Luke is like one of those fiction writers who really has one story to tell, but he tells it in five different novels, you know? You ever read a book like, it's like you read a Grisham, I don't know, maybe Grisham's not this way, but you're like, hey, I kind of already read that book. But it's not, but it's, it, it's the same thing. Because Luke tells his gospel with Jesus' ministry beginning with what? Jesus standing up in Luke 4 in the, in the synagogue, unrolling the scroll of Isaiah and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, open blind eyes, proclaim freedom to the captives, on and on and on. And then it parallel acts, the church begins when the Holy Spirit falls on them and says, here's your power now to continue on this work. There's all kinds of parallels through the book, actually. This is a centurion and a centurion. And Luke ends with Jesus meeting Pilate. Acts ends with Paul before the Roman leadership. The, 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 Luke's telling the same story on purpose. He's compiling these stories to say the, the point, to make the point really clear. What Jesus did, we now do. How Jesus lived, we now live as his body on the earth. But it begins today, Acts 1, today, by waiting. It begins by waiting and saying, God, form us as your people. Teach us to eat together and learn to be with one another. God, fill us with your power each day so that we can live this way. Amen?